series in interfaith studies. I know some people in the room were here last year to hear the chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs. That was a very, very interesting and instructive and enjoyable experience for us. And I know several people in the room were here the year before to hear Jan Asma uh, talking again, in a way that was most uh, instructive and fascinating for all of us. So how lucky we are this year to have a third series with a distinguished speaker, an opportunity to hear the speaker, to talk with him, and to have a panel of learned colleagues in a few days' time joining in this dialogue, because these series have all been, in one way or another, excellent at opening up dialogue, and I know that this series will be too. Uh, I'm going to ask my colleague, Professor Guy Strumsa, who is the Professor of the Study of Abrahamic Religions here in Oxford and at LMH, to tell you a little more about the Humanitas uh, program, and then to introduce our distinguished speaker. Thank you, Francis. Uh, I won't take too much of your time, but I must uh, express my thanks to the Humanitas uh, scheme of visiting professorships in different disciplines in the humanities at the universities of Oxford and Cambridge. Um, the Humanitas scheme was established in cooperation with the Institute for Strategic Studies in London, and I wish to express my thanks to the Institute for Strategic Studies, to Lord Weidenfeld, who is the living spirit of the Institute, and to uh, Natalia Bulgakova, who is, uh, who is with us and who represents in very dignified manner the Institute. I also wish to express my thanks uh, to, for the generous support of two foundations, uh, which, uh, as you see here, support the, the professorship in interfaith studies at Oxford, the uh, Guerin Hermès Foundation for Peace, uh, and I'm happy that Mr. Xavier Guerin Hermès just made it in time to be with us tonight. I'm delighted to see you again. Uh, we met many years ago at Harvard and then here, and. Uh, through 
different ways. We also had connections with your foundations. Our students were guests of your foundation, of your Riyadh in Marrakesh, so I wish to express thanks for that also. And to Mr. Gil Shiva, who is not here, but who uh, supports the um, uh, interfaith uh, professorship through the Susan Stein Shiva Foundation. As Francis uh, Lannan said, Jan Asman from the University of Heidelberg, a distinguished uh, Egyptologist and historian of religion, opened these five series for, the, uh, for five years of interfaith studies. Since I was asked to run these series just when I started my job here, I thought that after a general opening in the comparative study of religion, uh, we should uh, have uh, a number of at least three, uh, three sets of lectures on Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, because I'm paid for doing that. Uh, we, uh, uh, so we had Lord Sachs uh, last year. We have Professor Filaliansari this year. Uh, next year, uh, Lord Rowan Williams will uh, speak about another uh, uh, Abrahamic religion. Um, I want also to express thanks to Sarah Beb and Adam Guy uh, from the Humanitas uh, uh, office in the Humanities uh, Division and to Dr. Francis Lannon, who is hosting this series uh, very kindly. Let me say a few things to Dr. about uh, Professor Filaliansari. It is um, serendipity that brought us together. When I uh, first came to Oxford, I received an email from an astrophysicist working at Oxford, Dr. Khalil Shamshan, and I invited him to lunch at LMH. He's here in this room today. And he told me, if you want someone, you have to read and meet Professor Filali Ansari. He's a real Abrahamic mind. And, uh, and then I organized a workshop on tradition in the Abrahamic religions here. I contacted Professor Filali Ansari, and he agreed very kindly to come. And his presentation at the end of the workshop was the most impressive of, of everything we heard there. And so I set my mind that I would invite him to, to speak. Um, let me say a few technical things about his biography. Uh, he, Professor Filali Ansari is a founder. He taught philosophy at the Université Mohamed V in Rabat for years, then was the secretary general of that university, then established uh, in 1984 a wonderful institution in Casablanca, the King Abdulaziz Foundation for Islamic Studies and Human Sciences, which is probably the most impressive research institution for the human sciences in the Maghreb, I think. I, I was a guest there for a conference some years ago, and I was very impressed. And that was the work of uh, Dr. Filali Ansari. He didn't stop that. And in uh, 2002, he established at the Aga Khan University in London 
the Institute for the Study of Muslim Civilization. He's now, he stepped down after some years and he's now a research professor in this institution. institution. But that's, this is the, the technical frame, if you want. Um, Dr. Filali Ansari was trained and taught and thinks as a philosopher. As a philosopher with very strong Islamic roots and uh, a man who is connected to the past and who has his feet in the present and looks towards the future. And this is, uh, this is what, uh, what, uh, what goes like a, a, a red thread throughout his, uh, his writings. He writes a lot, he has been writing a lot in the last, uh, in the last decade and more on modernity in Islam. How should we, uh, we Muslim intellectuals and we in, in the Western world think about uh, transforming, uh, is Islam is being transformed into modernity and has the advantage and the disadvantage uh, over Christianity of having to do it later and very fast. And, uh, and as, as we all know, the, the bubbling events in many places in the, the Muslim world in general and in the Arab world in particular show this, uh, the expression for an impatience of, of moving to a new stage. And Filali Ansari has been thinking about these, uh, these events, these phenomena, the Arab Spring in very clearly, very honestly, very personally, with no apologetics, which is very rare, I think, and uh, with, um, with a clear mind, and, but never forgetting that the f in order to go into the future, we must understand and remember the roots of our culture and civilization. Um, I shall mention only one, uh, one or two titles of books. Is Islam Hostile to Secularism? Reforming Islam, an Introduction to Contemporary Debates. Um, and uh, the Islam and the Foundations of Political Power. I'm not going to, uh, to go beyond that. I will let you enjoy what he has to say. Professor Filali Ansari, please. Well, dear friends and colleagues, I feel really humbled by this invitation, by being included between two lords, and uh, by being, if I can say, uh, asked to contribute to this series of, uh, of, of uh, lectures, which I have been, if I can say, in the past, involved in a number of uh, interfaith initiatives initiatives, but this one seems to me to be quite distinguished, quite uh, interesting by the fact that it allows the, the contributors to, uh, to go to some depth and gives an opportunity to uh, explore some important issues uh, as one should be, if I can say. So, if I may, uh, Lady Lennon, uh, Professor Strumza, I'm really very grateful for you for this invitation. 
and uh, I hope I will be, if I can say, at the level of contributions that we had in the past in this series and that it will be possible to uh, continue uh, to build on what has been already offered in order to explore issues that are essential for all of us. If I may, my main concern has been throughout uh, my career, my work, about uh, discourses on religion. Uh, the first thing I should stress is that maybe in contrast to Lord Sachs, who spoke last year and with whom I, we had a very interesting exchange, and maybe in contrast with Lord Rowan Williams, who is expected to speak next year, I am not what may be described as a man of religion. I don't claim any authority, let me say it from the outset, to say what Islam with capital I is or should be or what people should think about it and how people should think about Islam. What my, my endeavor is maybe more modest than that or maybe more ambitious, I don't know. It's, the, the, it's rather to consider the way a number of people around us make such claims, the way people make claims about what Islam is what it should be and how people should think and how should they should behave and to look at these matters in critical ways and to try to understand where, if I can say, the authority can be founded and where we may have some questions to ask in our minds about such claimed authority. It may be uh, the case, it may be worthwhile to ask uh, the question why for this religion in particular, for Islam, it, is, uh, it has occurred to the organizers to call not on a man of religion, not on an imam or a faqih or a theologian of this, or, but rather on someone who considers, if I can say, the, 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 the way claims are made in the name of Islam from a critical point of view. I hope to show in this series that this is nothing, that this is not something that have, has to do with the personal choice in the most strict meaning of the word, but that, uh, that the conditions where we live, the, the conditions where we operate, where we think are dictating rather or are leading us to raise questions about the claims that are made in the name of religion, the way they are made, and the, the legitimacy of, of their, their, their grounds. I will begin here by a, a quotation from a Christian theologian, Wilfred Cantwell Smith. It's two sentences, but that I will say maybe twice. Men generally tend to talk about other people's religions as they are and about their own as it ought to be. As a result, insiders and outsiders may use the same words but be talking of different things. If I may, I'll repeat it. Men generally tend to talk about other people's uh, 
religions as they are, in their facts, if I can say, and about their own as it ought to be, as a result, insiders and outsiders may be using the same words, but be talking of different things. I think this gives an idea of what is happening around us nowadays. We use similar terms to talk about religion, about Islam, and, uh, and across communities, across divides of communities, we have the impression of thinking of the same things because we are using the same words, but in fact, we are having in mind different things. If I take an example from the uh, traditions of uh, Muslims uh, that are in question, uh, the, the case of the dimma, the dimitude, which is part of the history of uh, Muslim societies. If you go to any Muslim context, you'll find that it is the object of great pride, that it is considered as the, if I can say, the emblem, the reason that makes of Islam the religion, the only one, this is the apologetic attitude, the only one which would have formally created a space for other religions, which would have accepted formally their existence and acknowledged them as valid to some degree and so on. But if you look at what, uh, if you hear what is said about the dimma and dimitude in, uh, among historians who are not Muslims, you find a different story and you find a diff different impressions. This is, I think, something that explains uh, many misunderstandings that happen around us nowadays. It's the, the, the tendency, if I can say, of many insiders, which is a tendency that can be accepted as legitimate to some extent, to uh, discuss or to think of their religion not in the way it has operated or not in the way it has been received and lived in different contexts, but rather in the way they think it should be in, the, in terms of its values, not in terms of its facts. And these values, as it happens quite often, are not, well, they, they may be a number of values and uh, ideas about values that are shared across members of the community, but very often the values are projections by individuals, by people, by movements and so on, about what they think ought to be the case for their own religion. So this is where I think begins the kind of, uh, of turn that leads us to what we may call apologetics. This is what makes, if I can say, people ignore the real around them, ignore the history, ignore what happened really and how people are living their religion and just think of what should be the case. And this is what leads sometimes and what we see around us is happening in very strong ways. That leads to what we may describe as a kind of ideologization of religion. Each one wants to project or nearly those from inside, those who adopt their, the point of view of their religion as the correct point of view, uh, project what they think should be the case and, for example, find in their religion whatever they, they, are, they li li would like to see. So, in, in some cases, 
which is happening to a great, large degree in Muslim context nowadays, this tendency, this exercise, is, goes to extreme, to extremes, to the point of leading people to forgetting or not seeing reality around them, or not forgetting their, sometimes their own history, forgetting the ways through which they came to think and to live the way they, they think. In fact, if I may open a parenthesis here, the notion of apologetics comes to us from Christian traditions. This is a word historically, and I'm speaking under the authority of historians, that comes from the history of uh, Christian uh, denominations. And the idea behind apologetics is that the faith, or those who hold the faith, think it, think it very appropriate or necessary to support their beliefs, their faith, by rational arguments. To, uh, to find uh, reasons, if I can say logical reasons, arguments, to support their faith. And uh, apologetics was, if I can say, felt within religious communities whenever they had to deal with rival communities, whenever they found themselves in context where they were confronted to others who had different beliefs, and whenever they found themselves in a situation where they needed to justify the fact that they were not following the prevailing beliefs in the context where they were. And this may have been the case for most of religious communities. Technically speaking, in the history of Muslims, the equivalent of apologetics should be what was called kalam. Kalam, well, literally, it's speech or talk. And uh, kalam was, the, this is the, the, the term that is used to refer now to Islamic theology in medieval times, in, uh, in uh, the, the medium, medium period, in the middle periods, as historians say. Uh, kalam was, if I can say, a discipline that was dedicated to finding, to developing arguments in order to support the faith of Islam in face of the uh, arguments or criticisms or attacks of other, uh, of people of other faiths. And this is what led to the, to, to the development of Islamic theology as we want to call it today. Uh, it was the uh, discipline of Kalam and numerous schools have appeared in the past and they have adopted what they found around them at the, that, uh, in their time. They have adopted the theories, doctrines that they found among philosophers and they adopted also methods, argumentations, ways of uh, the discussion that they found available around them. So we have had a number, there were a number of schools. However, this whole discipline of Kalam did not last very long. If one, one in Muslim contexts, theology has not been as, if I can say, as long living, as strong, as influential, or as uh, other disciplines were, especially those which attempted to identify what ought to be done. If I can say this is what made some people describe Islam as maybe closer to Judaism in stressing the need for orthopraxy, 
not for orthodoxy, not the right opinion about what should be thought, but what one sh should be doing, the right practice. So, uh, Kalam has flourished in the early centuries of uh, Muslim communities. It has been more or less disaffected or abandoned or forgotten. It remains now in books and we don't see many mutakallimeen around us, many uh, individuals who are if I, uh, working on kalam nowadays. There are a few. There is an Egyptian by the name of Hassan Hanafi who has been a prolific writer in the 20th century. There is also a Moroccan by the name of uh, Taha Taha, Taha, well, his full name will come later. Both have attempted to uh, engage or to explore some new avenues for Kalam in our time, but both, none of them seem to have a great influence on the way people are thinking about their own beliefs and uh, their, their atti religious attitudes. So Kalam has more or less been around in Muslim context for a few centuries, then more or less faded away or have been, if I can say, people have retracted from it and left it in favor of the other disciplines that attempt to identify the ways of doing what ought to be done as uh, in, in Muslim contexts. However, Kalam has left a great influence have, has left a great and a deep impact in the minds and attitudes of, Mus of Muslims until this day. Kalam, the attitude of justification by reason. The idea behind Kalam is to prove or to attempt to prove demonstrably or arguably that Islam was superior to other religions. This idea of superiority, this idea of self rightfulness or righteousness has been, if I can say, promoted or uh, defended by mutakallimeen, but has remained with us and does remain to this day without the sophistication of the doctrinal or theoretical apparatus, without the sophistication and technicality of the argumentation. This is what makes many and see that most of discourses about uh, Islam nowadays are, or in most cases are apologetic in nature. It is the idea that there is an inner superiority of Islam, that it is a given, it is claimed that Islam is superior, is the final religion, the final revelation, and then the other religions, if I can say, are kind of delusions that Muslims could or should tolerate to some degree, but they, that they should not, if I can say to which, they should not uh, give full respect. This is what I am calling apologetics, and this is what I am seeing as prevailing around us in most discourses about Islam. And this is what makes, if I can say, the preaching or the contributions of men of religion, of clerics, so difficult to understand, so difficult to absorb, so difficult to uh, interact with from people of religions other than, than Muslim. 
This may be the reason for which a preacher could not be in this position of contributing to a dialogue like this one. And I would like to show in, in the few minutes that come how it was possible and how it would be possible in the future to resist this tendency to apologetics. It is fully legitimate for any believer to uh, believe in the truth of his or her faith. I think this is not something that sh should be questioned. We have to admit that if one is believing in something, he or she must give himself or herself reasons or must be convinced of the validity, legitimacy and correctness of their beliefs. But it is something else to build the whole feeling, the whole attitude on uh, impressions of absolute superiority, of absolute finality, and of, uh, if I can say, uh, no uh, possibility for any dialogue or any listening to anyone else than those who defend their own faith. So, in order to face this attitude, as I said, I would like to look at two, uh, two examples, one from the past and one from one or maybe more from the present. I would like to, to reconsider attitudes by Averroes, Ibn Rushd, in pre-modern times. Averroes lived nearly 900 years ago. We have difficulty to imagine that, nine centuries separate us from Averroes. Yet, he had views which are very interesting about our subject. If I may, about Averroes, a lot has been said and a lot has been written. And what has been said and written can be organized into uh, two categories, in a way. One of them is a collection of technical writings. There are specialists who have been working on, for example, uh, the terminology or the language of his metaphysics, of his cosmology, of his fiqh and so on, and who were thinking and writing and working with in mind the idea of uh, specialists like them. This is on one hand. The other category is a number of discourses which celebrate Averroes Ibn Rushd as a champion of rationality in a very dark age or against very conservative, very dogmatic people and so on. We know there, are, there have been so many uh, encounters, uh, seminars, colloquia and so on organized ab about him and uh, we were flooded with uh, discourses of that kind. It seems to me that there is something that remains to be said about Averroes, which has not been said, which would help us really understand his significance for us. Understand it in a way that is accessible to all of us, not only specialists, not, not only historians, but all of us. And one of the reasons that he is most significant for us is his attitude towards Kalam, towards this kind of argumentative theology that he has seen uh, developing around him. He was extremely hostile to Kalam and rejected 
the whole approach of trying to, divide, to use reason to demonstrate the validity of a religion. The idea behind Kalam is to use arguments, demonstrations, in order to support the, if I can say, the truth of the claims, the truth claims, or the validity of one religion in particular. And for him, that was the wrong way to do things. For him, reason could be applied only, if I can say, to the uh, exploration of nature, to building knowledge about the world, about history, about religion, about even law, about how to uh, build systems of regulations. So, uh, but faith in itself, religion, should be accepted as it is, as it comes. It is, should be accepted as we accept faith. It is a given. It is given to us by our community. We happen to be born in communities and to receive our faith from the community where we have, to which we happen to belong. So for him, this is a given and we should respect religion in this way, accepting it, accepting it as uh, the foundation for the social order, accepting it, I would use terms that, that are not appropriate maybe the, because they don't belong to his time, accepting religion as a pedagogy of virtue not as a framework for the exploration of the world or the truth claims of religions, doctrines, philosophies, and things like that. So for him, this is what came to be labeled later as the theory of the two truths, as if they were a truth for the masses and another for the elite. In fact, for him, it was a system, and I think this system he is laying the ground on which we are standing today. It's the idea that, well, faith has to be accepted as faith without trying to support it or to argue or to reason in its favor and so on. And reason should be accepted as the way, the means, the method, the approach that allows us or enables us to explore nature and the world around us. And that the fact for him is that religion points towards reason. Religion, there's a double pointer here. Religion points towards, uh, towards reason and encourages people to engage in thinking about the universe, about creation, about uh, nature and so on. And at the same time, reason points towards religion as the foundation for the social and political order, as the needed the foundation for social order. So there is a kind of distribution of roles between religion and reason. Each has a task. One is to help us, if I can say, and to help educate the masses in morality, in the good behavior, to provide for a society foundations for its social and political order. The other is to enable a number of individuals. In his time, it was not something that could be open to everyone. He had, if I can say, to make a clear distinction between those who were enabled, who were capable of engaging in, in rational practice, in demonstrative argument, those who were able, if I can say, to, 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 to engage in disciplines that allow
people uh, allow us to raise questions about the world, about the universe, about history, about man, about law and so on. And those who had to keep the belief, the basic, the essential belief that is conveyed by religious traditions and to keep it in the, the best ways. So I think there is a lesson here from Ibn Rushd. There is a lesson, in fact, more than a lesson, I'm, this is why I, I see a great significance of his. The idea, this uh, distribution of roles is something that we have come to accept, I think, in, in all our societies, more or less, and it forms the very ground on which we are standing nowadays. This has come from Ibn Rushd well before Kant, well, if I can say, before the 18th century, where it was admitted that, if I can say, uh, reason cannot a priori without experience, without, if I can say, data about the world, cannot reason and decide about truth, about the universe. Ibn Rushd had this clear vision and uh, he was not, well, uh, his views were not well received his, in his time. We have a number of anecdotes. We don't know much about his personal life, but we know for sure that he suffered a lot and suffered a lot at the hands of the mutakallimun, of those who engaged for kalam in his time, of those who wanted to keep this attitude towards the masses, towards their society, of telling them, you are the right people, you are the elected, and nothing else can be accepted, nothing beyond that. You don't need to listen to others, you don't need to learn about others, you don't need, you just keep where you are and you keep repeating to yourself that you are the best, you have the ultimate, and that's it. So that is the lesson, if I may, from Ibn Rushd. I would like to go to our time uh, and to highlight at least one, if we have time, I may also mention another one, but one who has been remarkable in the 20th century. It is said that his essay gave or started the greatest controversy in the whole history of Muslims. His name is Ali Abdel Razik. I had the honor of translating his book into French, then lately with the help of some friends into English. His book is entitled Islam and the Foundations of Political Power. It was published in 1925, and since the year it was published, each year there are a number of refutations that are published, but none of them seems to have really satisfied everyone. The book stands there like a kind of, it's a short essay of 100 pages, and it stands as like a rock uh, confronting a number of waves, but staying where, where it is. Uh, Ali Abdel Razik, the author, was trained in Al-Azhar. This is the remarkable thing about him. He has not been properly exposed. He, one cannot accuse him of Orientalism, or of being under the influence of Westerners, or of uh, uh, non-Muslim scholars, or whatever because he was trained in Al-Azhar, like all the clerics of his time. And uh, at some point when he finished his studies, 
in his time he witnessed a great event that was shocking, came as a huge shock to all Muslims everywhere. It was in 1924, the abrogation of the Caliphate by Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. In, it was the end of the Ottoman Empire and Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, the leader of Turkey at that time, had at first decided that the Caliph or the Sultan who was uh, in the Ottoman first would take only a kind of spiritual position that his, his attributions would be reduced to the spiritual role and then he abrogated the institution of caliphate altogether. And this created shock waves everywhere in the, the Muslim world. We have reactions from India, from East Africa, from North Africa, from everywhere, because the institution of the caliphate has been, well, with Muslims has been living, although precariously most of the time, but it has been around, it had been, around for centuries and the idea of abrogating it was something that no one was expecting and no one was ready to accept at that time. So the question came to Ali Abdel Razak as a graduate for the School of Theology, what to think about the Caliphate and its abrogation? What ought Muslims think about it? And he had an idea which is at the same time uh, very simple, which may be described as a kind of, in its simplicity, strike of genius. It's the idea of looking at one bold statement that comes from everywhere as it, if it were the, the, the remains of a Big Bang. The idea that Islam combines religion and politics. That Islam is at the same time, or provides to its believers uh, a number of religious beliefs, but also an idea or a system of political organization. So his approach to the subject was very simple. Instead of commenting, of adding another layer of comments or discussions on what already existed, and uh, as most scholars do, they never take a question from uh, its very beginnings. They, they tend to react to other scholars and to engage in in dialogues with them, he had the idea of forgetting everything that has been written, for pushing aside everything, whether by Muslims or by non-Muslims, about this feature of Islam. And his uh, approach was to begin by surveying the scriptures, the Quran, from A to Z, and making a kind of inventory of all verses which may be purported to have a, a meaning, a political meaning or some political consequences. And in fact, looking at the Quran from A to Z, one finds none of these sentences. He doesn't find, he finds what uh, some have been using as broad allusions. One is a verse enjoining Muslims to obey those in charge which may be called, the, it's the principle of ta'a, or I would call it the principle of discipline. Whenever you are in a group, in a human group, and the, the, every human group, every community, every uh, grouping has some rules of its own. Has, so one has to abide by the rules of the group to 
which he or she happens to belong at any time. The other is the principle of shura, of consultation. Those who are in charge of the group are requested to take into account the opinions, attitudes, preferences of those who are under their authority. So we have two principles here, which are very broad, which can be, if I can say, applied within a family, within a, a village, within a, and which do not in any possible way provide enough to create a constitution, to make, if I, to define a polity. Nothing is there to define a polity from in the Quran, absolutely nothing. He does exactly the same for the hadith, for the sayings of the prophet. And he comes to exactly the same conclusion. There is nothing in the scriptures. So what happened? What made Muslims think that they are bound to have a polity and uh, that to, to live by some, uh, if I can say, religious precepts in their common life, in their uh, public life? What he finds is that something happened in the history of Muslims, not during the lifetime of the Prophet himself, but immediately after. What happened, and he unearths, if I can say, or rediscovers, or brings back to light a number of events which are well documented in the early literature and which show that they were, in a way, debates at that time, that many options were available. He, for example, finds one among those early Muslims who, on the death of the Prophet, said, well, good, we uh, have been a religious community until now. Let's continue to be a religious community, but let's not create a state. If I can say he was more or less the first secularist in the history of Muslims. In fact, this man has been fought and rejected as a renegade and has been executed. And his execution, what he finds, what is interesting, is the fact that he has been itself contested by many. And among those who contested the fact that he had been executed for this opinion was Omar ibn al-Khattab, who was going to be the second caliph a few years later. He was one among many who found that that opinion should not have been rejected in that way that that man had been a good Muslim until then. And the fact that he disagreed on the very idea of transforming the community built by the Prophet into a polity, the fact that he didn't agree on that was not something that, that deserved to be punished in, in that way. And of course, we know that among those who went for the idea of creating a polity, uh, there were great differences and the differences are still with us nowadays. They explain the schism between the Shia and the Sunnah and Khawarij and various denominations amongst them. But the, the main point highlighted by Ali Abd al-Razik, by going back to history, by looking with a fresh eye on the early, on the sources about the, the, uh, of the, the, the early moments, was that the transformation from a religious community into a polity was something that happened in the history of Muslims and that was not enjoined by Islam. That it is something that belongs to Muslims and here he brings, if I can say, a, a clear distinction between what should belong to a religion as a system of beliefs, as a system of rituals, 
as a, if I can say, worldview, and what belongs to the history of Muslims as a number of events, of developments that take place that, and take the community in this or that direction. This is what led a contemporary historian to, to encourage all of us to adopt or to opt for a terminological choice, for a choice of terminology. This historian, his name is Marshall Hodgson, has, uh, has found that uh, although for Christian traditions it is very easy to make a distinction between the realm of religion as systems of belief and the realm of history because there's the word Christianity and there are, there's the word of Christendom. In the case of Islam, whether among Muslims or not Muslims, the same word Islam is used for the equivalent of Christianity and for the equivalent of Christendom. So he, Marshall Hodgson, encouraged and began to use the term of Islamdom. He said that it is high time that we make, put some order in our ways of looking at these things, that we put under Islamdom what belongs to the history of Muslims and what we put under Islam what is properly part of the belief system that that religion is. He even added a third term, Islamicate, because for him, the large array of civilization that was built by societies which adopted Islam in their history involved a large number of non-Muslims. There were so many, if I can say, contributors to the Islamic civilization who were Jews, Christians, uh, well, uh, adepts of other religions, yet their contribution is part of of the whole that is Islamic civilization. And he proposed to call it Islamicet, like Italianicet, uh, because it, it fed and it made, uh, it was part of, of the, the whole that was, if I can say, created under the aegis of Islam. So to go back to Ali Abdel Raziq, Ali Abdel Raziq was uh, rejected in his time. Uh, the same year his book was published, uh, there were two or three great refutations that were published, and he himself was tried. It was the first time in the 20th century that a Muslim theologian or Muslim cleric has been officially tried for his opinions. The events in Egypt at that time went much further than that. The government, a government fell because he was assumed to be part of a political party. And uh, the, uh, the king of Egypt at that time felt very badly about the, the, that essay because he thought he was at that time thinking of claiming the title of caliph for himself. Well, the historical conditions were such that the book had a great resonance. At, uh, the, the thing that surprised me a few years ago was to find on the market in European languages, in French mainly where, well, that I could see at that time, but also in English, that there was an abundance of translations of, by, of works by fundamentalists. Yet this book, which had such a great influence, had not been translated, or I found out that it had been translated, after, but uh, very 
very old and to me quite awkward translation some time before. So this is why I did this translation and, and the fact is that the book is still published nearly every year. You knew whenever you, wherever you go in the Muslim world you find it published again and again and most of the time in pirated editions. There are so many of them that no one can make a catalogue of them nowadays. It is one of the most influential. And I think this point that he brings, which goes against, if I can say, the, 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 the most established wisdom. Whoever you ask today in academia, within Muslim, the Muslim world, within, in the West, about Islam, they would immediately say, this is the established thing. It is a religion which, in contrast to Christianity and so on. Uh, but he has shown that if such thing has happened, it is because, and this is a point which is very important in our discussion nowadays and so on, it is because people project moments of late history into early history. This projection is part of the apologetic discourse, or part of the apologetic attitudes. It's the idea that whatever you like, if you like socialism, then you say Islam was the best of all social socialisms. If you like communism, then you see that in Islam there was every idea to create communism very early on, and so on. This ideologization is built on this reflex of projecting backwards a number of things that happened in history. And this is also something that happens around us nowadays. I'll come to that in more detail, uh, maybe tomorrow or the day after. The idea of Sharia as being the pillar of a Muslim society. I will try to show that in fact our ideas or the prevailing ideas about Sharia are also or belong also to Islamdom, to the history of Muslims and that what, what is done is to project them on the Quran and to give them sacrality by linking them to the founding moments of Islam. So this is the other example that I wanted to, to, to bring in our discussion about uh, apologetics here and the way to resist it. I could maybe, do I have time? I could uh, refer to someone else whose book still awaits proper reception in our time. Uh, it's difficult to, to mention this book because its tone is very irreverential and it is, uh, the, the tone of the book is very, in a way, quite aggressive. Yet, we have so much to learn from it. The book is by an Iraqi poet whose name is Ma'ruf al-Rusafi. Ma'ruf al-Rusafi lived early in the 20th century and he too, like Ali Abd al-Razik, had not been exposed, he had never learned any European language and had not been exposed to modern learning, to modern scholarship, nor to modern philosophy or nothing of the sort. The languages he knew and practiced were Arabic, Persian and Turkish. He worked as a teacher of Arabic for some time. He worked also as a journalist and he became in time the poet of Arab nationalism. He was the one early on in the 20th century who celebrated the Arab nation 
at a time where most of the uh, Middle East was under the Ottoman Empire, the late decades of the Ottoman Empire. And his poetry has become a kind of classical of the genre. It is taught in schools. I, I like all uh, people of my age at that time, had to learn some verses by heart. We remember the celebration of the pride of being an Arab by Maruf Rosafi and so on. But Maruf Rosafi, towards the end of his life, maybe one decade before dying, decided to uh, look again at the main narrative about the Prophet Muhammad, about the founding moments of, of Islam. And his book is entitled Shakhsiya al-Muhammadiyah, The Personality of Muhammad. It, it's signed, he has finished writing it in 1934 in Fallujah, Iraq. And uh, no one wanted to publish it for decades. It was published in Germany in 2002, nearly 70 years after it was written. This book is uh, again like what Ali Abd al-Raziq did. <coughs> he went back to the early sources and discarded all later commentaries or literature. <clears throat> he wanted to see by himself, not to be taught by anyone, by any school of interpretation, by any, if I can say, way of taking people somewhere or proving this or that. He went to the very early sources. And what he found made him reject the master narrative, what we may call today the master narrative about Prophet Muhammad. He even, this is where he is very offensive, he, attempt, he rewrote the shahada, the, the main prayer of Muslims, pledging, if I can say, all for truth, as not for any other deity. I have a copy of his, of, uh, I translated this. It's a massive book. Ali Abdul Razik, the essay by Ali Abdul Razik is a small one, 100 pages. This one is 790 pages or something like that. It's a massive book where he goes through all the early literature about the Prophet and comes with a very different narrative where he, at the end, he claims his great admiration for the Prophet. He is not someone who steps out of the faith. He thinks of Muhammad as the greatest man in all the history of mankind because for him he was the first one to have thought of a community that would be built not on belonging, not on the fact of power, of might, of military might, but would be built on ethical principles. And that not only he thought of such community, he did everything to make it happen in history. So someone who combined a vision, a very outstanding vision, and also with skills to make vision come into history. And the vision is that of a community of humans who come together, not because they are part of the same tribe or clan or people or nation, or whatever, who come together not because there is some, some military might, some, 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 uh, someone who is compelling them to obey the, him or some uh, form of political power, but they, because they choose to come together and because they choose to come together into a faith 
which per wants to be universal and wants to be simple and all-inclusive. And this is what he did and this is what worked for the Arabs who in his time were a combination or a, co a collection of tribes uh, warring in, uh, each, in war each, uh, with each other and were in a way a kind of marginal people between great empires such as the Byzantine, the Sasanian Empire in what is Iran nowadays and an empire in Ethiopia and so on. Arabs had been um, in the margin of history, as he says, and it is this vision and the skills of that man which made possible for, for them to create this new kind of polity and to inspire others to think of, if I can say, polities which are built on adhesion to principles, not on belonging and not on pure uh, force. So, his book, as I said, is uh, well excessive in the way he deals with the uh, established or the accepted narratives about the Prophet. He is not a scholar by any... His language is not the language of a scholar. It is not measured. It is not... But he is very knowledgeable. He, is, he has been to looking to the sources. And he is, as I said, an angry man very angry against the master narrative and very angry against what we can call apologetics again. So the, this is the second example that I, I thought could be relevant to our discussion about apologetics. I think there are ways for us, there are ways, and this may apply not only to Muslims, it may apply to uh, people from other religions. There are ways of accepting history, of not having the option of either facts or values, of either going as will, will the, 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 the quotation I read twice in the beginning, either thinking of a religion as it is or as it has been in history, or thinking of it as it ought to be, as a system of ideals and values and so on. There is a way, if I can say, to, for the, those uh, thinkers to be positive, about the religious heritage, but understanding how it works in history, how it has worked for one's own people, and how it has been able to build or enabled people to build not polities, not only polities and empires and so on, but to build values, to build adhesion to uh, principles in various and different situations. So this is my introduction to this series. I hope my point has been clear and I'll be very happy to respond to any questions if, uh, if needed.